Hey everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Vertical Playpen, a podcast all about adventure and experiential education. I'm your host, Phil, and joining me on the podcast today is Megan Minen, who runs outdoor programming at UVM, the University of Vermont. Our connection, Megan, is that you've come to trainings, so I know that you've come to trainings with High Five, but we've also served on committees uh, for AEE together, and so we've seen each other a lot at conferences, so uh, that's how the two of us know each other. What I'm going to do, though, is do a mystery round at the start, what I'm calling mystery questions where we're going to answer a random question i've written a list of questions i've numbered them and what i'm going to ask you to do is just pick a number and then whatever number you pick is the question we answer and it will be something you answer and something that i will answer so we'll learn maybe something new about each other so here we go for mystery questions Pick a number, Megan, one through 10. We're going to go with three. Okay. No, five. Oh, no, I want to do... Okay. Oh, actually, no, actually... <laughs> so I want to do three and I want to do five. So let's okay, do great. both partly because I think they might be quicker. Okay, so uh, question number three is, how would your parents describe what you do for a living? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah. Uh, I think they would just say... She like does outdoors stuff and she works at the university and she works with people. She just likes to be outside and do adventures. And, but she does that for a job. That's what they would say. Yeah. Yeah. I honestly don't know if my parents still to this day know what I really do. They were, they found out I did a podcast for a bit and listened to some episodes and said, that's not what I thought you did. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> what did you think I did then? What did you think I came to the States for? I think they just know, because the problem is every time I bring my parents over or something and they've seen stuff, it's I show them stuff that's worthy of being seen, which is the challenge course. So it's like they see that they make an assumption that they're not going to look at my, look at all my textbooks that I read. <laughs> like it's yeah. like, that's not as interesting to people. When, but this is like a tie into that question. It's not written down in this one. But what does your daughter think you do for a living? That's another good question. I think Willa thinks that I am, yeah, just like adventure woman again. Like mm-hmm. it's it's kind of like she's just outside climbing trees, doing things. I mean, Willa, Willa is so much different than me in a lot of ways. Like she is a, she loves her dolls. She loves to play pretend. And, but I think there's some similarities, like, in just like the desire to just play, like, and mm-hmm. I mean, that's probably most kids, right. But she just wants to like play and interact with things and like be with you and be present. And so I try to like to connect that for her a lot of the times, like what we're doing is like really the same. I'm just doing the adult version of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. How, how do you, how is, have you, because I would, if I asked Ella, that I ha- I have asked her, and I tried to record it one time because I wanted to think maybe that would be a cool episode, uh, asking like facilitators to ask their kids what they think their parents do. She just she said I I play with kids, so that was, and I was like, <laughs> all right, all right, I, I can. Oh, and she said I go up high sometimes, so that <laughs> was all. That. 
Yeah, you climb in trees. And yeah, that yeah, sort of thing. you're yeah. in the air. Um, has your uh, right? So we teach we teach adventure and we teach experiential ed, and there's a lot of like challenge stuff, and there's the the challenge zones and all that kind of stuff. How is your parenting when it comes to that stuff? Like, are you? Because I I find myself struggling. I before I had a kid, I was like, oh yeah, I'd be fine. Like this is like, oh, I see kids like being bubble wrapped and stuff, and I'm like, oh, I'd never do that. I'd mm. always let her do stuff, and then I'll do certain things to a certain degree, but I still find myself getting anxious when she's like climbing and stuff, and I'm like, ah, oh, I can't like, I want her to do it. Yeah. But I don't want it to get hurt, which I think is normal, but <laughs> I'm not as I think loose. It is. I mean, I feel it like in my body when she's close to the edge. Mm. And and I somehow we ended up with a really cautious child, which mm. I don't know. It's same, like same with the me. world's yeah. And and I mean I guess I was might have been a cautious child. My little brother's in the outdoors, he was a cautious child, and now he's a zipline guy and whatnot. So I it's funny how that works out, but you know, I think um, for me, it's, it's, I'm trying to encourage her to just like go a little bit beyond all the time. Right. So we're doing, mm -hmm. we're skiing right now. We spend Wednesdays, our Wednesdays off together. We go skiing and, uh, and she, she's like really fine. She would love mm -hmm. to just stay on the green. She's a great skier, you know, but it's like, what is the next step that we can take and kind of aim towards that with her? Mm -hmm. Um, but I mean, I do feel you like even when she'll, she'll take off and sometimes she will just like bomb straight down the mountain, you know, and just fly mm -hmm. straight down. And I have that feeling like my whole body feels like I got to catch her. I've got to like save her. And then there's that other piece. I listened to a great podcast and I wish I had the reference to it, but just about how, especially with girls, we tend to say like, be careful, be careful. Mm -hmm. If you were to watch like both young, like parents of boys parent on a playground, right? They're not saying be careful. Is this on your podcast? I don't know. Um, oh, yeah. to like the, it was a great like a podcast. Boy, so. It was a great podcast <laughs> to like a little boy who's climbing, you know, a fire fireman's pole or something mm -hmm. like that. And to a little girl, there's like, be careful all the time that we're saying. So I'm, I'm like really conscious of yeah. that. Um, but I'll, you know, and also want to encourage her and then be there when she falls. But I also find the tendency of being like, you're okay. Get up. You know, too. Yeah. There's so. such a, like such a balance. I, I was, uh, I've referenced this in the, in this podcast before, but I made a rope swing during the summer and it was like nothing crazy, but I, uh, I had these, I sometimes like have these like irrational fears that the rope was going to break, even though I know because of the mm -hmm. work that I do, that that's not going to happen. And so uh, that annoys me sometimes. I'm like, God, I, I teach, when I teach, I have this like way different threshold of risk. And it makes sense. But when I'm with her, I'm like, oh, I have to really watch what I'm saying. Because I do the be careful all the time. And I'm like, Ugh. so now I've tried to recraft the, the language a little bit and just say, you can do that. I just want you to think about it a little bit, like make a good decision rather mm -hmm. than the be careful. Because be careful was a statement probably isn't helpful anyway. Like, how does that make change anything when you say be careful? I'm like, oh, okay, great. Because normally I'm like, <laughs> I don't know if that's helpful advice ever. It's just like an instinctual thing that I jump out. It's like, be careful. It's interesting. I wonder if like the difference is, you know, like just be aware you're close to the edge there or something. Mm -hmm. If it doesn't seem like they're aware, because mm -hmm. yeah, be careful. It just stops you from doing something in your tracks. You're like, I'm not going to do this anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, that. yeah, I've got a friend, uh, one of uh, Ella's good friends is a, is a young boy and, he uh he's they've been learning to ride bikes pretty much at the same time um mm -hmm. learn how to pedal they don't we went from um we did balance bikes we didn't get like the um the wheels yeah we did the same thing and that was that worked great because now she's 
pretty good at it. He was going down a hill and their parents were like, oh, look, here he goes. And then Ella goes down and I'm like, why is no one watching? I had that like, and maybe that's also because it's a boy. Yeah, intriguing to me. The other question that you'd picked on mystery questions was number five. And I'm also very interested by this one. Uh, I am at high five a notorious uh, ranter. (laughs) um, (laughs) Because things, things annoy me sometimes. So this question is, what is your biggest pet peeve? You can cut out this blank space where I'm thinking. No, it's okay. It's the power. The power of the edit allows me to always do that. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are so many things I know. that annoy me. And so this is like such a hard one. Um, I really think cell phones annoy me. Like it really annoys me when I mm-hmm. want people to be present and they're not, they're not there. They're distracted. And I, and it annoys me when I do that too for myself. So it's not like it's hypocrite. Like I yes. don't want to be hypocritical when I'm that same person that really annoys me when we're supposed to be here and be in a space. I think what also really annoys me is like not thought out like design for how an event is going to go. And so um, I'm thinking of a particular example that you and I were together at, but um, I, <laughs> I, I just, when I think about like any sort of event, like I, I do really love the way that spaces are created. And so that could be something as simple as like the flow of a day at a challenge course or the way that a staff meeting is run. Right. Um, and so when things have not been, there's like some sort of intentional design, even if the intentional design is, to have space and for it to be organic. Like I love for there to be some sort of plan. And that doesn't mean I need to know it all on the front end. I don't have to, but I really want, if somebody is inviting me into a space or I think it's just really important to think about what that's going to be like, right? That could be like an online baby shower, right? That's Mm -hmm. fine. But we need to think through how that's going to look. And then what are the challenges in that space? And it bothers me when people don't. In advance. Yeah, going to your um, the, your first one. Have you seen um, <clears throat> the Social Dilemma, the Netflix documentary? Uh, it, it probably don't. Then <laughs> I don't know. It does. It doesn't make you feel good about anything. It's it's about cell phone use, and I struggle with it in a big way. I do a workshop uh, called The Power of Play, and in it, I talk about the the neurochemicals, and one of those being dopamine. I think. This is something that also maybe annoys me. Not only is the cell phone use annoying me, but it's like people don't want to ever admit that they're addicted to it. Like they don't want to announce that that, that is an issue. They like to uh, talk it down as if it's not a big problem. And yet, you know, everything you read and everything you see sort of says, well, I think that is a problem. You just don't want to have to stop doing X, Y, and Z. You don't want to have to stop putting the phone away. Good thing is when we do programming, we at least when we did it in person at High Five, we had it was pretty much announced at the start. Everyone's phones need to be away, and I like that kind of stuff. It feels restrictive, but Jim actually, there's a recording of this somewhere, but I'd, I'd have to track it down because I can't remember where it is. But he re, he was working with a uh, a group or a summer camp counselor group, and it was all LITs or CITs, whatever they call them, like the 16, 17 year olds. And he asked them the question, and he recorded it on his phone so the audio quality is not great but he recorded the question asking them what do they think about cell phone use and all that kind of stuff and because this camp was a tech-free camp and they said they loved that the the summer camp took their phones away because it relieved all the stress and the pressure from it 
So mm. teens are asking for it. I think that like there is, it's not, I think that we probably struggle with the idea, adults struggle with the idea of trying to restrict. But I think if you just let them make the decision, there was another person who said, um, it was actually in that, uh, the end of that documentary, I said a good strategy if you're working with your kids and trying to reduce their cell phone use is rather than say you limit screen time by saying you've only got an hour, ask them how much screen time they should have today. And most of the time, they under guess what they would want, right? Like, because they, they expect you to say no to higher numbers. So they'll go, uh, half an hour? And you'll go, yes, okay. So they mediate themselves. It's no yeah. different than like a full value contract or something where the group creates their own rules. The other topic about the, about the design thing. Yeah, I, I also am not a big fan of when um, people don't realize the impact that something has like the impact on their the way their demeanor is as a facilitator or and how that can affect the mood i've right. seen a lot of people like inauthentically try to do stuff that they know they just don't like they're doing an activity because they don't but they don't like it and you're like why do it then it's like yeah. you don't realize like that you're setting the precedent for the energy of a space yeah. and i think that that's a thing as a facilitator it's harder to teach that but you feel it like some two people can do the exact same activity, the exact same words, but one will work and one will won't. And it's like, how do you really train that skill set in people to realize that? And I think it's nervous energy at the start when you're a new facilitator. What do you do? You're going to mimic. You always mimic, right? Like, I mean, I, I think I think about that a lot working with students. We have a lot of students that will come through or we sort of started a, a program. Well, then they might come through their first semester and do a challenge course program with us for a semester, right? And the first that then when as soon as you see them running their first programs, that's what they're doing. They're doing exactly what you did, right? That's like part of the learning process in some ways. It's it's you, you're going to mimic and then you're going to go back and you're going to slowly start to find your own voice. And that process to watch, I think that's, why I love this work so much and especially at like the collegiate level where you're getting to work with four students for four years in a row or maybe a little bit longer if they stick around um, is seeing that them go from this sort of like didactic I'm following the rules I'm getting this done to now finding my own voice and um, and language that I want to use and the way that I bring this to life and that's just the best Mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, yeah, that's very cool. So yeah. how? So that's mystery questions. Thank you for answering those wonderful yeah. mystery questions. They were good. Let's t- let's look at you a little bit more. Like, how did you start in experiential education? So you're working at UVM now, but what was the path to get to there? Yeah, it's been sort of all over the place, as I think maybe this road is for lots of folks. It's completely a nonlinear path. Um, I, I was actually reflecting on this a little bit this morning. You asked already what my parents thought I did. Um, and it's really my dad that exposed me first to like the outdoors in general. And I would say, that you know, those are kind of the touch points. It was, you know, being able to go to summer camp. Right. Um, or um, being able to uh, just spend time with him mountain biking or like whitewater kayaking. So my my sort of entry was more in that direction, more just like adventure, outdoor activities um, in general. Mm. And um, when I was in high school, we had a we had a challenge course at my high school. Um, and so we got involved with that actually early on. Um, and they had an outdoor leadership program and I got involved with that. 
Um, and that was all great. And then I went to college and I did nothing with like experiential ed. I studied, I studied religion undergrad at a liberal arts college, um, which, you know, I, I think liberal arts colleges are great because they really teach you how to think. And I really think they probably teach you how to be, you know, a good listener, a good facilitator, good at engaging. I finished and I, I, I college was great. And it was also really challenging for me because I just love to like move. Like I'm just, I just, I, I really like to be active. I went to like a fairly academically demanding college and um, ended up finishing a semester early, mainly because I just needed to do something different. I went on a Knowles course down in Patagonia and that was great, but very cold. And then I realized, wow, like this is the world that I really love. You know, I, I think for me, it's, um, I just, I, I love the sort of natural connections that are formed. Actually, my, my trip uh, with Knowles was actually really, really challenging group dynamics wise. And I did a lot of like analyzing of what was going wrong um, and just sort of thinking like this, but this is what I love to do is sort of this organic nature of like what happens when you place people in an adventure, right? Which adventure is really just like a novel environment. It's anything that's sort of novel to you. And so I thought, could I do this? Like, can I go to grad school for this? And, um, and I did, I went over to Edinburgh, uh, university of Edinburgh and did a grad program, grad program in outdoor education, um, for just a year. It's a great program. And that was really it. That was like the exposed me to like, and I would say that the cool thing about that program was that it touched on so many different things. And that was really the first time where I heard about this giant umbrella of like experiential education. So to tie it back to your question is that it wasn't just, while we were doing a lot of like outdoor skill sets and that sort of thing, it was personal and social development in the context of outdoor education. It was like, you know, experiential learning. Like that was the first time I read any John Dewey and so was exposed to that sort of thing. So I loved it. But the, the interesting part about this is that at that point, I thought challenge courses were ridiculous. Like I was like, who would do a one-off four hour or less sometimes even experience? Like that does not make any sense. Um, Cause I was reading all these studies about, you know, long-term programming and the effects that it has on, on students. And so I was kind of anti that type of programming, but yeah, I, I think that was kind of what jump-started me into that direction. And I had no idea what I was going to do because I, I think you realize this umbrella is so large and you can go kind of like this environmental route or more of this like adventure ed or maybe, you know, like long-term like wilderness programs or wilderness therapy. Like I had no idea at that point. So that was coming out of grad school. Our industry needs to get better at promoting all of the capacity of what we do, all of the potential mm. of what we do. Because I think that the thing that we all share is that we all had this nonlinear kind of way that we just found it. And then when we found it, it spoke to us in a big way. And it was like, oh, this is the thing that makes sense. It, and it can tie into lots of different avenues. Like I was a high school English teacher. That was where I was going. And I just found that this was a better way to teach people. Like I was using it as a medium of like, oh, I could teach people things through this. And it's way more engaging than sitting in a classroom. And then I got more into the team development route. When, when you're working with your students, like how, do you, how are you setting them up for success into the world? What advice are you giving them? Yeah, that's an interesting one. I, I think... 
it's interesting because like UVM, for example, doesn't have an and like an outdoor ed or like experiential ed trajectory. And so we get this mm. like sort of niche like set of students that's either really involved with like maybe the outing club or some of our other like outdoor based groups or students that come in and they find out about the challenge course and they want to facilitate because they love that. Right. And so we kind of have these sort of auxiliary things, but they have no academic component to them whatsoever. Yeah. And students are like, well, I want to do this for my, for my job. Like, how do I, how do I get the opportunity to do this? And part of it is like, just keep doing what you're doing. Like do what you love, like mm -hmm. find where you are passionate, at least academically, right? Just some subject that you can learn that you really care about. Because if you're moving into the experiential world, right? Experiential like education world, you're going to bring in whatever that knowledge is into that space, right? And so whatever, you know, whether you're studying psychology or you're studying science, you know, or environmental studies or, I mean, education in general, you know, all these other pieces to art, um, you're going to bring that in to then this like experiential component, you know? And so I always tell them, like, don't try to don't try to necessarily craft your major. And now sometimes we do that. Sometimes people are like, I want to do outdoor ed and we work on crafting something that they can create by themselves. But I say, you know, go and just like do your extracurriculars, do your co-curriculars, get involved in the community, go to these conferences. And then let's talk about the path, you know, after this. But I don't think, I think that's one thing I absolutely love about the experiential world, like you're saying, is it's that all these people come to a place under this sort of shared love of being able to, I really think experiential learning is just about asking good questions, you know, and, and bringing that like learning to life for people. Um, and so it doesn't really matter like what you're doing right now in some ways, as mm -hmm. long as you're willing to, to help people connect the dots. You yeah. have something unique. Well, maybe it's not unique. I don't know. Cause I'm, is that UVM, cause you said it's an auxiliary thing and anyone listening who doesn't, it might be like, well, of course, Vermont, Vermont's university has an outdoor program or an experiential component of student life. But what's the benefit that you see as doing the outdoor program for the student life department? Like, what do you see as why should all colleges have them? Like, because I don't I'm not sure if it's true that they all have like a program like yours. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's a fair amount of of universities that have outdoor programs, and they and they are nestled differently, right? Mm. Like, so ours is nestled within the student life department. Some are nestled in, in recreation. Some are academic um, and are really rooted deeply in that. Um, I love that we're like co-curricular. Like, so I love that there's not an academic component to mm. it. Uh, I think because you get students that are just so passionate, you know, that are building an incredible leadership, like within our, th this year in particular, I've gotten to work a lot more with the out, outdoor program, with the outing club in particular, and some of the other clubs. And you you have such a, it's, it's the second oldest outing club in the country at, at UVM. Um, and um and so there's a huge history of just incredible leadership development that it's all passed down through the students. Now, you know, we're kind of engaged. We're definitely engaged with it and more and more engaged with it, the, the staff are. But this is just, it's student passion to lead other students outside. Um, and I, and it's not necessarily about like sending the best line, you know, like in the mountains or something like that. Like they're, what I really see with these students is that they're so passionate about being together in this space. And I think so much of that 
and this is, this is actually gets to the heart of like why I love this work as like a giant umbrella and even, you know, sort of more of like the outdoor adventure side is we're inviting people into like, I, I call it true hospitality. It's like, you're really inviting people into like the chaos of your life, right? Like, and you're taking them into this space that is undefined. It's constantly changing, right? It's not like this room I'm in right now, which is climate controlled and whatnot. And, um, I know that the dog's not going to walk in because he's out. Like you have no idea what's going to happen in that space. Right. And so it's this completely authentic space. And I think that's what they love so much about it. And I, and so I think that's why they've been willing to kind of keep perpetuating this. They might not put it in that same language. Right. But um, from what I've sort of gleaned working with them this semester uh, and past year in particular is that that's why they do the, what they do. And so I guess I, just to go back, that's why I love that it is not, like you have to check these academic boxes, you know, for this program, um, because I think you get a lot more passion behind it. What do you think this industry still needs to work on? Recently heard a quote and I really like it because I think that uh, mm -hmm. it, it speaks a lot to me. And so it makes me feel better sometimes about things I'm thinking. But the quote was, a critic is the truest optimist. And I like that phrasing because I think that critiquing stuff always feels like it's negative. Like if I'm saying something needs to w improve, it's like, oh, I'm saying it's bad. That's not always the case. I love the field that we're in. M me critiquing it only has that desire to make it more because I see the potential that it has. And so I feel, I, I worry sometimes we're not seen in the light that we portray outwards. Like we all talk about this as the best thing in the world, but if it's truly the best thing in the world, why does not everyone know about it? So it's like, there's an issue there somewhere. And I don't, I don't know what the answer necessarily is. I think it's this though. I, I think that something has to do with it is that when you're a good experiential educator, like people don't necessarily realize it because you're just doing it well. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, like, I, like I think about yeah. people when they say like, wow, like that was so like that, you know, that facilitation went well or something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. And it actually takes a lot of behind the scenes work to do something, to make something look easy, if that makes sense. And I don't necessarily think that there's this in-between piece of when people are... <laughs> I don't know. Have you ever seen that grid that's like the consciously incompetent? Yes. Yep. Right? Unconsciously incompetent and like moving to that like consciously competent, competent. right? Yep. So like, mm -hmm. and I think it's helping people to kind of see where they might be in that, in that grid. Um, I don't know that we necessarily do that well. I think we kind of like want people to, we're like, you got to be here really quickly. And we want people are in the sort of con unconsciously competent, right? We, because when you see somebody do it really well, who has been in this world for a really long time, right? They are consciously competent, right? Like they know they're competent, but there has been like a really long time. And I think that the way that our world wants things right now is this back to this instant gratification. Like we want to do it. Everything is instant, right? And so all of a sudden we're going to be expert facilitators instantly, mm -hmm. or we're going to be expert ex outdoor educators or wilderness therapists or whatever it is, artists, all those things. But that takes a long time and it takes a lot of talking and mentorship and community around 
around it to be in that place. And so, you know, are we willing to let people make mistakes? We talk about that a lot. I don't know that we always are. We want it to be like, I think our expectation is when we see really good facilitation, we think it should all be like that. It should all be perfect. And we're Mm -hmm. kind of willing to jump in. How are we mentoring people on that route? you know, and how are we kind of helping them along and, and also just like letting them make mistakes and really kind of like talking, like walking the the actual talk, you know, and doing what we're actually saying that we want to do. Yeah. And I think even just, you know, we have such, we have so many of our like big names that we know in the fields. Right. And Mm -hmm. um, I love what we started to do at the AE Northeast conferences and give space, you know, for, for emerging professionals to be able to try things out. But I think part of it is like, we need to go to those things. Like we need to be there and we need to be present. And I don't think we necessarily do that for the incoming folks. Cause we still want to learn. I think we're all learners. And so we're like, let's go to this one. Cause I really want to get the most out of it. Yep. And I wonder at the same time, how do we, and this, and this is me speaking to myself too, but how do we give back? And how are we present in those spaces? We are an industry of imposter syndrome, folks. Like we could list 10 people easily of people we know who who put themselves out there more. But that's not the gamut of the skilled facilitators that we know. Like our community knows way more. And yeah, there's there's two parts. One, how how do how do we ourselves advocate for the expertise that we have to be able to do stuff? Like how comfortable are we going and presenting and saying I have some expertise. And then on the and then on the flip then, how are those people who have been doing it longer, do we have an actual mentorship program where we can take their crystallized skill sets and actually make spread that around? Because otherwise mm-hmm. we do end up with these isolated like, how do they do that? Well, we don't know because they've never written anything, they've never presented anything. They're this like because I know know people that even work at High Five who just aren't necessarily going to put themselves out there in the world but i know i've seen them facilitate and i'm like what you should be teaching people that (laughs) like what you do it's it's not an inherent skill there was um edge of leadership our program they were doing a, a workshop called are you ready for sel and it was this concept of trying to train people up to teach social emotional learning like rather than saying this you should teach it the people who teach it should probably know about it first, right? So it was like, take a few steps back and learn these things. And, and I, I realized like, wow, that's true. We don't really, we've jumped to the end. We do we do the jump to the, we need to do that, teach that, but we're not cultivating this, the, the adults to be able to learn those skills. So yeah, I think that's probably a miss too, the mentorship piece. Is there anything that we didn't touch on that you really want to talk about? Anything that like you, this is also an opportunity to promote a little bit of UVM's programming if you want to do that. A couple of thoughts. I think one, I will just emphasize like explore. You asked earlier about, you know, what advice do I have for emerging professionals? And I would just say like explore. Like there was a time where I worked four jobs, you know, as a project adventure. I did work at a, um, like a place-based camp and on the North shore of Massachusetts, I did puddle stompers in Boston area, like working with like little ones um, and, and had no idea like what I wanted to do. Was this going to go like this place-based direction? And I still don't, and that's okay. So that is one thing. Um, I still love all of that. I'm passionate about all of that. Um, 
And so I think it's okay as long as you're just willing to be out there and be with people and connect. Um, that's what people really want is just like authentic connections. So um, that, that is one thought. No, I, I mean, just, you know, I, I, yeah, I love working at the university. Um, I do think that um, UVM has great, it's, it's an amazing place to be outside, right? Like the University of Vermont and just being able to be in the mountains here. And I have really, I've been in a lot of places in the world um, and have really found my home here um, in Burlington and with the community at, at the university. So, you know, if you're looking to get outdoors and, and go to college, I do think that it's a great place to be um, and explore the Green Mountains and the Adirondacks just across the lake. Um, and there's, there's just a lot to do here. Once we're out and open again, we haven't had the challenge course open, but we do have the challenge course at UVM that we love um, to have, work with outside folks as well. And that's a really special place for for students to be and then also for our community if anyone was interested can they reach out to you yes and how and how uh email (laughs) okay i always think great i always take uh megan's email in the description (laughs) shout it like shout really loudly into the air just come knock on my door we can have a fire pit in my backyard yeah i'll put uh, her address and her social in the description absolutely love to see people in person if out of this you've got people like knocking on your door uh excuse me you said i could come visit (laughs) my newest thing that we've just taken up is um is scajoring so we have a black lab yeah so you attach the dog to you know harness and then to your waist and he just takes off and you just take off. So if anybody's up for a skijor. Oh my goodness. We have, to, I've got a black lab too. I know you do. I okay. Know, we have so a lot of similarities. We, we have, have five year old kids, black labs, <laughs> yeah. one child. One right? child. Tell me more about this. Like you say, are they on a, like a, you're on a sled or something or like you're no, on no, skis? Skis, cross country skis. Cross country skis. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Harness for you. Like it's got like a waist harness. Yeah. Really. It's not like a full harness and then just a like a leash with like a bungee mm-hmm. cord and then they have like a harness that's like safe for them so it has a pull on the back side of their body and so they get a lot of a lot of torque and they just they just take off i'm sure there's like technical language for it we just are making up words at this point that are like go go you know? oh right yeah like, the commands yeah. <laughs> like come yeah. on. all the commands for it but um yeah so he just starts running and you just start skiing fast it's awesome so the reality is I've never put a ski on my sh- on my feet at all. I've never skied cross country or any of skiing. I- I'm super nervous about it. Like what what advice? Our daughters are the same. I- my daughter hasn't learned to ski because I don't know how to ski. I was assuming that maybe five was too young, but obviously I'm, n- I'm wrong. What should I do, Megan? <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is, I will say this in terms of, I think learning a new skill as you get older is like yeah. really crucial for us as experienced yeah. educators. So like one more p- tidbit. And this, <laughs> um, but I, so I just have moved. I, I think that it is like so crucial that we try new things and like learn something ridiculous, you know? So now is the perfect time to learn how to ski. I actually didn't learn how to ski until I was like 25. So, and the first time I ever put cross country skis on, I was getting ready to do like a five day expedition in Norway, like a backcountry, like a, a cross country ski ex- expedition. And it was just, I was just all over the place. So I think being willing to learn to be able, okay with falling. I also think if you and Ella learned together, she would get such a kick out of that because she would crush you. Once. I know. I like, so much better. <laughs> I, so I've got a lot of people like uh, in the community who ski 
I feel like I want to know a little bit more. That's my own ego issue. But mm-hmm. <laughs> I wanted, Definitely okay, I keep putting issue. it. I I keep putting it off. I I know that there's that yeah. a certain point when she gets to elementary and stuff. They they do in in the in the area. They have Wednesdays off school, or they take the school trips to the mountains, and it's part of like school time and mm-hmm. parents are invited so i know it's kind of come at some point that i have to do it so i just need to but. i mean if you're interested in it if you're not then you know don't, you don't have well, to do it, right? well yeah exactly i'm being <laughs> i'm being forced peer pressure vermont peer pressure it's everywhere so there is there's great learn to ski programs in vermont yeah. um where you can go you know and have like three day lessons and it's cheap and all the stuff. Do it. Okay. It. All right. Great. So, no pressure. okay. Lesson no is, pressure, but no pressure. Lesson is do it. I agree. Yep. I have to do it. All right. Thanks, Thanks Phil. Great okay. chatting with you. Yep. You too. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to Vertical Playcast. And then, what about thanks for listening to High Fives Podcast? Can you do it? Okay, try. Thanks for getting. I think I'll pass the guy. <laughs>